when you see things from an eternal point of view, your vision would be very, very different than when you see them from a temporal point of view. You see, it's not, it's not the matter of what you look, what you look upon with your, with your eyes and what you observe with your senses. That will be the same whether you had an eternal point of view or you had a natural point of view. Because you'll still see people and circumstances in pretty much the way the factual nature of these things are. You know, you will see people, uh, you'll see the color of their hair, you'll understand, you'll know how old they are, you will, you will see what, what kind of clothing they wear and so on. Those facts do not change, nor do they need to change. But how you interpret what you see is the issue. If you interpret what you see based upon a linear or natural point of view, then you'll see what you see in a certain way. And how you will manage that information will depend upon what point of view you have about it. If, on the other hand, you will view the same things from an eternal point of view, or if you will view the same people from an eternal point of view, how you interpret what you see will be just as different. So it's not, I'm not asking you to look at the factual aspects of things differently. But I am saying that if you will look on those things from an eternal point of view as opposed to a natural point of view, you'll see them differently. I'll give you an example. Right after the fall of man, okay, right after Adam and Eve ate of the tree, the facts of their lives remained essentially the same. They were naked, and God was coming to visit them in the garden as he normally did. Nothing was new in that sense. The facts were yet the same. Now, before they ate of the tree, when they were naked, did that make them feel vulnerable? No. Before? No. They were naked and not ashamed. They didn't hide. They didn't protect themselves. See? The facts were the same. When God came into the garden before they sinned, was that an occasion for them of panic and alarm? No. Because they were seeing things from the point of view of God, an unfallen point of view. After they sinned, When they saw themselves as naked, did they see themselves vulnerable? Yes. The evidence was that they made clothes, clothing for themselves. When, after they had fallen, when they knew that God was coming into the garden, as Adam said, I heard the sound of the Lord in the garden. What did he do? Did he run to meet the Lord? No, he ran away from the Lord. See, the facts were the same. They were naked. God was coming to visit them. But that was the way before they ate. That was the way after they ate. But when you interpret what you see with your soul, you will always interpret it from a linear point of view. That's what Jesus meant when he said, You are from beneath, and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
Now, you'll recall that when Jesus prayed in the garden, when he, or rather just before the garden, when Jesus prayed for his disciples, this is what he said. He said, Father, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. What happened? Before he said, you are from beneath, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. But then, as he's about to leave, he prays differently and he says, Father, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. What had happened? He now was operating in the reality that whoever comes to him really is in him. And his specific intent is to give them his point of view. So that when they possess his point of view, they're no more of the fallen, linear way of being than he is. You see the difference? This is in fact what Jesus intended. So, he changed our point of view. He said, from now on, I am going to my father and to your father. He genuinely meant to change our point of view. This is what's real. And then he says, I have given you the right to sit down with me on my father's throne. There are all these things written in the Bible. Have you, have you heard these things before? Of course you have. Of course you have. You've read these things before. Now you're seeing what they mean. When you look at the facts through the natural senses, you will see them from what the Bible describes as a worldly point of view. A worldly point of view is a point of view occupied or preoccupied with your provision and with your protection. When Adam, when, when the Lord visits Adam in the garden and Adam is, is, uh, sees God coming and has sinned, Adam runs from God and hides from God because suddenly he who had no concern for his provision and his protection is now clothing himself and hiding himself. Same facts, but the mind, the soul, if you like, is, is, is interpreting what it sees differently. Prior to that, the man is naked and he's not ashamed. He's not vulnerable. Doesn't see himself as vulnerable. Prior to that, God comes in the garden and the man runs to meet with God and God gives him the knowledge of the created things. Okay. Before I get into the matter of knowledge, I want to, to just touch it right here. Because quite obviously the thing that God did with Adam when he met with him was he instructed him concerning how to rule in creation. This morning you were watching as a as piece of an iceberg, a piece of a, of a glacier broke loose. And it created this substantial wave that came through you know, it came through uh, uh, and, and affected the boat. I didn't do it in any, you know. It, it, they were talking, however, about this wave that was created. You heard about this 1,800-foot wave that was created. Can you imagine what kind of a, an extension of energy would be required to create an 1,800-foot tidal wave? And that would be just off of a couple of glaciers colliding. There is incredible energy, power, in the physical world, just in the things around you. The weight of water, the power associated with the movement of water, a mountain slide, the, the, the funneling of the wind in a certain direction. 
the knowledge of the secrets of things natural and supernatural are the treasures that God has of wisdom and knowledge. But because we have no way of thinking about the movement of these things, we limit God to what we could see that he might do. So when we pray, we ask God for an extension of power, the like of which we can understand. But, for example, when God wanted to deliver Jonah from one location to another, he did it differently than the way we would have. Some of you are talking about uh, watching the whales. I think it was Andy. And how the whales trapped mackerel or, or um, a particular type of fish. How they trapped them together at the bottom and caused them to come to the surface with expulsions of air, unhinged their jaws, and captured vast quantities of this of this prey. Now, all of this is is part of the knowledge that God has for for humans. But if we if and when we see things only from a natural point of view, then we'll always be asking God to act in a way that we can see and understand and function. But all this that you're looking at, and so much more than what you're looking at, all of it constitutes the knowledge of God about creation. What is the power of a volcano? You know, what is the effect of the tides? We've learned that there is a thing called gravity, but we have no idea how it works. Oddly enough, and I don't want to say much more about this uh, because I intend to get into this some more. Oddly enough, this, these are the very things that God asked Job about when Job questioned the integrity of God. But Job said that he believes that God was unjust, or he believed that God was unjust. God said to him, who is this who darkens counsel with words without understanding? Gird up your loins like a man and answer me. Where were you when I stretched out the foundations of the earth upon nothing? Can you bind the sweet influence of Pleiades or loosen the bands of Orion? Do you know the paths of the sea? Do you know the treasures that are in the snow? These were the questions that God began to ask Job. And Job's response was appropriate. He said, I am dumb. In other words, I just don't know what I was talking about, God. You are God, and, and I just don't get it. But And that was just God opening the thing just a little bit. Is it really far-fetched, the things we're talking about? Or is this what used to be and will be again? When Jesus returns and renews the earth, and continues to rule and reign in it, as Adam would have done, had he, but for the fact that he had fallen. What do we think Jesus is coming back to do? Except to demonstrate God's grace and mercy to humans in an unfallen state. Look, the creatures around us have never sinned. And so they have never been separated from the way God made them to be and to function. What we're up here admiring is a goat with four legs and have, have these hard hoofs that can walk up these mountains without propelling equipment. You saw the goats on the side. God gave them how to pick their way up this mountain. 
which of us in this room, except maybe Dickie Stanley, <laughs> could, uh, could, could walk up the side of this mountain like that? Were you looking at them and, and were you as astonished as I was? And they don't, they don't have hands to grip, they don't have fingers to grip and pull themselves up with. They don't have equipment to get up there. How on earth could they get up there? I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, little, it was a little one following the big one. Do you see what we're seeing? That there is an, a, a whole world, a whole level and basis of understanding and knowledge and functionality that when we look out on it, we could just, the whales coming together and blowing uh, large catches of, 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 uh, of, of whatever fish they were hunting, together and all of them coming up through and eating their fill. I mean, who instructs these creatures in these ways? Are you as amazed as I am at the things we're seeing? And, and the funny thing is, they do this every day. And God has just opened it up and let us see something of the majesty of God in the creation unfallen. What would happen if we who have been fallen are restored? What would happen? What would be the level of our understanding? What would be the level of our comprehension? What would be the level of our wisdom? How would we live in it if we were restored? But that's exactly what's happening to us. That in Christ, the entropy that came because of sin has stopped. Has stopped. And it's reversing. We are beginning to understand from God's point of view how we were meant to live here. It's no surprise to us that the first thing God gives us back is the understanding of lordship. Of rule. He isn't just telling us and he's not wanting to simply reveal all this information to us and have us be at the bottom of the heap thinking, well, that's nice. What do I do with it? It's the rulers to whom he gives back the understanding of how to live in this creation the way we, the crowning species, the ones whom he made by fashioning us with his own hands, he didn't fashion the mountain goat with his own hands. He just said, let there be, and it was. He didn't fashion these magnificent fjords by forming them, by shaping them. He didn't have to touch it. He just said, let there be, and it was. But with us, he formed us from the dust of the ground. He breathed into us that part of our being that has its origins in him, our spirits. And when he, when he raised us up from the dust of the earth, he said, have dominion over it all. You are the rulers of it. I made it and I've given it to you to rule over. And in our folly, we said, we think we want to be like you, but we don't want to have a relationship with you. And we lost it because it's not possible to have dominion over it apart from being in fellowship with God. It's not possible to have dominion over it apart from fellowship with God. And we lost it. But has he restored us? Is this a fact? Has he restored us? To fellowship with him. Yes. He himself came. And provided the means. By which we might come into him. And have fellowship once again with the father. So we have been restored. And now it's time. For the things that he gave us. When we were in fellowship with him. To also be restored. 
It doesn't do for us to be restored and yet suffer the consequences of the loss. The great, one of the greatest tests that we have been restored is that he also gives us back what we lost. Do you see that? It's not unlike having a child to whom you gave uh, a certain thing But because of their immaturity and the like, they lose it. But later on they change and come back, and you still have the thing to give. Because you see, God, when man lost the right to rule, God didn't give the right to Satan. He didn't give it to anybody else. It waits for us. We can't rule when we are separated from God because there is no ability to rule separated from God. We don't have the knowledge, we don't have the understanding, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the counsel. There's nothing we can do with what we've been given if we are separated from God. Because our ability to rule is, is like, a, like a, a pendant that hangs from the relationship with God. When that, when that chain is broken, we have no ability to rule. Even if he continued to say, have it all and rule over it, we would not be able to rule. Because we would have been cut off from the source by whom we are able to rule. You see? But once, it's re once we are restored to the one who, who has given us the right to rule, then we have once again what it takes to operate. And so, he's restored that to us. Now, in addition to restoring to us the right to rule, he's also giving us what it takes to rule. Wisdom. Wisdom. Solomon recognized this when he came to the throne. He had been given Israel but he understood that as king of Israel, the thing he needed was not territory and people and power. He needed the wisdom to rule well. Because you see, rule in God, the right to rule, is not just your ability to do with it whatever you want to. The right to rule in every situation comes with this obligation, that you rule for the benefit of those subject to your rule, and never for your own benefit. When you rule under the hand of God, okay, when you rule under the hand of God, your rule is always for the benefit of those subject to your rule and never primarily for your own benefit. It's the most important concept of rule that you could ever know. Even in the world, people... People touch that. They touch it in certain ways as if, for example, if you have employees, you know that you have a certain duty to keep the employees happy. You know, you may not necessarily want to do it that way, but you know if your employees are not happy, the people under your authority are not happy, then they could sabotage. So even if it's no more than self-preservation, in the world, we understand that if you have authority, you must rule, exercise that authority, with at least consideration for those who are affected by it. But in the kingdom, that is the governing principle. So, when a husband is set to be the head over his wife in the things of God, in the manner of God's rule, then the husband doesn't say, he doesn't live to have this kind of authority, I am the head, you do what I say. 
who'll get me caught. They'll go throw another log on the fire and, and all of that, that that song says. You begin to understand that those under your rule are the ones for whose benefit you are given rule. This is the way it works in the kingdom. Therefore, it becomes imperative for you to see everyone from an eternal point of view and not from a natural point of view. So that's why the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from now on, we regard no one any longer from a worldly point of view. Although we once regarded Christ in this way, we do it no longer because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Yesterday when we were talking, or two days ago when we were talking about this subject, I used a couple of examples from my own life. We talked about Tamarit, my daughter, and how I was ruling as the father with the idea of manipulating her to do the thing with her life that I thought she should do. And what I was doing was, I was ruining her. Because I was directing her in a path for which she had no vision, concerning which she had no interest, and the only way that she would have kept going in that direction is if it meant that she would have been supported. You know, my, my, my ability to manipulate her had to do with the fact that she was not yet prepared to support herself. We, we've watched this thing over the years. And we've watched how parents have treated their children. And we've watched how families have become fractured and estranged for the fact that, or because of the fact that, parents simply did not see their children the way that God made their children to be. And in, in thinking about what was best for our children, we followed a worldly point of view of success. What I was saying is just ordinary ways of wisdom in, in how we see our children and how we raise our children. On the islands, if you were, when I was growing up, if you were a doctor, medical doctor, a lawyer, or a minister, preferably an Anglican minister, then you would be the top of that social order. And parents did not think about such things as who God made their children to be. I mean, I do not know that anyone, I do not know of anyone in my growing up years who had any idea about people having a destiny that God created them to fulfill. I didn't know anybody. When I was in law school, more than half of our law class, I would say probably 60% of our law class, had were there because some family member, an uncle, a grandfather, brother, was already a lawyer. And when you talk to them, the majority of them really didn't know what they wanted to do, but they were there because that was something they could do. Think of this incredible waste. Part of the problem is, you see, if you do not have God's point of view, you will have the same point of view that motivated me to try to get Cameron to be a lawyer. And Cameron would be no... God help us if she ever became a lawyer. <laughs> God help us. I mean, <laughs> that would not be a, that would be ugly. <laughs> that would be a brawl. All right? No, let them be who God made them to be. 
But, but to come to that, you must have a heavenly point of view. And when you do have a heavenly point of view, you know that the reason God made them to be like that is because that's God's pleasure. Now, when just in nature, to analogize to nature, when God made the whales to be whales for his pleasure, did God know how to feed them? Would God feed whales the same way he fed birds? No. Our problem is when we think with our souls, we're always measuring everything by our provision and our protection. And so we want people who are as different in their calling and function as whales and birds. We want them all to be assured that they're going to be fed the same way. And that's why we value one person as being greater because of that person's superior ability, so we think, to feed themselves and protect themselves. We never encourage our children toward those things that in our judgment make them more vulnerable. And yet, yet the beauty of human life has been more adorned by those who were vulnerable than by those who made themselves secure. Hmm? And probably the reason that artists have such a hard time is because they have to struggle so hard just to be artists. What would it be like if we who are righteous had a vision for our children that was the same as God's vision for them, and if we were to encourage them and help them and prepare the way for them to be that, and that they didn't have to spend 30 years 40 years, just coming up to the place of being able to confront us, their parents, and say, I am an artist. Because what is it that's in their minds typically when they think about saying, I am an artist? What do they, what's in their minds? What do they think we will say if they approached us that way? We who are they're, they're most important critics. We, their parents. They know what we will say. You want to be a singer? Exactly how do you plan to feed your family? And we think that by putting that on them, we are protecting them even protecting them from themselves. I believe part of the wisdom that God is giving us is to see others the way that God sees them and secondly, to encourage them to that direction knowing that if they're a whale, God will feed them one way and if they're a bird, God will feed them another way. And some, it's not the destiny of all to be rich in this world's goods. But in the kingdom, God will make sure that everyone has what he needs. Now, I'm telling you things that have cost me A great deal. Some of you probably heard my story. See, I have had to go through, in my life, I have had to go through this incredible change from one who used his mental abilities to try to figure out the very best, the most successful way of living 
protecting myself and providing for myself. I've had to change from that to the extreme of not when we were on the boat on this canoe uh, yesterday paddling paddling up toward uh, the glacier well, the day before paddling up toward the glacier the, the little girl who was in charge of the canoe was asking everybody um, what did they do for a living and one guy was a brain surgeon and the woman was a uh, an immigration lawyer and I know Lucy was just waiting to hear what I would say that I was because this has been this great mystery to her. <laughs> so I said, I'm Sam Solon, and I'm not gainfully employed. <laughs> I am not gainfully employed. Then everybody laughed. They thought I was mafioso. <laughs> but you realize what it... For me, it was this incredible... It was as if I had been disemboweled. It was that hard to change from what I could do and what I'd prepared myself to do to come back to living the way I'm telling you God prefers you to live. So this isn't theory for me. This is the reality. To trust God. Now, I've heard, I've heard people say, When do you think up these things that you come up with? When do you have time to think up these things? Lucy often will say, because she's with me, you know, more than anyone else. And she will not typically see the moment when God gives me the revelation of a thing. But I am just made to be able to do this. Can you hear what I'm saying? To me, this is like breathing. And so I don't think anything great of it. I don't go around thinking, wow, you know, this guy was, dude, <laughs> this guy knows stuff. No. Why would I think that way when to me it's like breathing? I watch you do things. I have no idea how you could get those sounds out of yourselves. I, mean, I, I You know, I hear Terry over there sing. And, and my mouth hangs open. And I think, no, that's, that's awesome. You know, I watch different ones of you. I watch Lucy, you know, prepare meals. And she's talking to me the whole time that we're, that she's, you know, she's getting various herbs and different things and putting it all together. And uh, it comes out spectacularly. If I were talking to somebody else and doing what she's doing, what I would prepare would kill you. <laughs> At least would poison you. You know, it would be... Sometime I'll have to tell you the story of when I was making uh, biscuits and I used Epsom salts. <laughs> One of my brothers thought I was trying to kill him. Because <laughs> I was talking and working. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that a lot of times our children it takes years for our children to understand who God made them to be and to walk in it because we didn't have a vision for them being who God made them to be and we didn't encourage them toward it and our reasons for doing so had to do with the fact that we were concerned that if we didn't encourage them in a money-making way, that there would be no way for them to make a living and we'd have to support them forever. And we would rather have their room after they're 21 than we would have them inhabit the house indefinitely. But I don't know a young person who doesn't want to get out and get on with it. But I do know many who linger because they can't find themselves. In in the 60s, I watched how ma as many families became estranged because in the, in the change of that day and time, 
people wanted, young people wanted to go and do things that their parents didn't even know could be done. And the parents, because they genuinely wanted what was best for the children, but had no idea what that would be, or how what was best for them could be fulfilled with them going off to become, you know, one of all these new things, you know, a tie-dye artist. <laughs> you know, they never imagined how this could ever turn into some potential for financial independence. They didn't have the vision for them, and therefore they never encouraged them to be. And and typically, as a matter of last resort, when they got right down to it, if the children were going to go anyway, the parents would try to restrain them at the very last by saying things like, if you leave, don't you ever come back. If you walk out of that door, you're on your own. And you know what the kids heard? The kids heard, I don't love you. I really don't care what you do. You're going to fail anyway. You're not going to mount to a hill of beans. And I just don't want to ever hear about it. And our generation, our generation, the greatest, the most oppressive spirit that I've had to deliver people of from my generation is a spirit of rejection. Now you know what the parents were saying? If you, if you said that to the parents, they said, that's never what I said. Lucy and I have had some of this, these discussions before because some of these things happened in, in a father's family. And what the father would never admit that that's what he did. But, but the children would have heard that. The father would have heard, would have heard himself say, I did everything I could to try to help you become successful. And you just never wanted to listen to me. I'll tell you the truth. Anytime you deal with families that have this, had this kind of conflict, the father is on one extreme and the children are on a different extreme. And the two have heard the other say the very opposite things. And the, each one has heard from the other. You're not good enough or you don't love me. That's what they've heard. But we have this great opportunity some of you are becoming grandparents now. And some of you have been grandparents for a while. And a few of you are great grandparents. A great treasure is being given back to you. As a treasure of the wisdom of God that you could pass on to those in your generations who will listen to you. And that is the treasure of being able to see others the way God sees them. If my father had no vision for my life, but my grandfather had a vision, and just one day when my grandfather and I would have been out doing something, he would have said to me, Now, you're going to be one fine little preacher when you grow up. That's all he would have had to say to me. It would have stuck back here, where not, you know, behind where the wind blows. <laughs> it would never have left me. And it would have anchored me. You see what I'm saying? The wisdom and the, re the restoration in wisdom that God is giving you, you're going to personally benefit from it. But your generations are going to benefit from it all the more. So it's not too late. It is not too late. Some of you are yet to have children. And you are, you've been, you're being given a front row seat. I'm watching this thing. And what it literally means. Is that God is retaking. A holy people. For himself. Did it not say. That the bride makes herself ready. How does the bride make herself ready. The seven spirits of God 
are the ways that God is retrofitting the bride so that she comes back into fellowship. We're being ready for what? For fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the retrofitting is so that that which was lost becomes ours again. When you see another from the point of view of heaven, when you see another the way God sees that person, the counsel, the knowledge, and the wisdom, together with understanding, that you will extend, you will have toward the person, and that you'll extend toward the person, those become from you to them. These words that you speak become the words of life. Your words will be words of life. God is not nearly as interested in how much money you leave your kids as he is the bequest of wisdom and counsel, knowledge and understanding that you leave to your kids. After all, it's God who gives people the gift of gaining wealth, financial wealth. But but the Spirit of God enables you to impart to your children words of life. And you you can do that without being hypocritical if your vision of who they are is the same as God's vision. You can do it without being hypocritical. One of the joys that I have been given is the joy of dedicating children to the Lord. And I won't miss the opportunity to dedicate a child to the Lord. Because I understand something about what it is. Remember once the disciples of Jesus turned the children away and they said, don't, don't come, don't bring these kids to the Lord. Jesus saw them, saw the disciples doing that. And he rebuked his disciples. And he said, allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them because of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then the word says he lifted them up in his arms and he blessed them. Well, consider this. This is just one one more example of how we have fallen. It was the norm for children from the days of the Old Testament and on through the New Testament. It was, it was normal for children to receive a name based upon who they were. Remember that? Jacob had a name. Yaakov meant the heel grabber. He came out grabbing the heel of his brother, Esau. And that was not a coincidence, that was, that typified his character. So he was named Yaakov, the heel grabber. God renamed Abram, and he called him Abraham, because the ha sound in Hebrew has to do with the name of God. He put Sarai, was renamed Sarah because it had to do with, it was a sound that was related to the name of God, indicating that they had been chosen by God. When Jacob was about to to die, he prophesied over his twelve sons. It was a prophecy governing all of them. And one of the prophecies over one of the sons, the son called Judah, was this prophecy. And the scepter shall not pass from Judah. Why? Because of Jesus, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. He was to be the king. The king would come from Judah. See the significance of these prophecies? When Jesus was born... An angel, before Jesus was born, while he was yet in his mother's womb, or as he was about to be conceived, 
God sent an angel to tell Mary who he was. What was the name that Mary was given for Jesus? It says you shall call his name Jesus. But he said he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go back. God renamed Jacob Israel. Because the word El, being from the word Elohim, was Prince of God. In spite of who Jacob was, the heel grabber, when God was done with him, he had a name for him. He wrestled all night with God, but he got his name. And his name was Israel. Because it had the term Elohim attached to it or implied. Prince of God was his name. Melchizedek. That name was King of uh, Peace or Prince of Peace. Because he was holding the name in trust for somebody else. Right? He had a city. The name of the city was Salim or Salem. And then it was named Jerusalem. Even cities with destiny had these kinds of things. Well, well, when was the last time that we prophesied over children? We who have the Spirit of God and who understand these things. We primarily just name them after ourselves. Rather than to seek the Lord for a prophetic utterance regarding our children. The word said that after the angel told Mary who Jesus was, Mary hid these things in her heart. And it helped Mary. Because there would come a day when she'd have to see her son be crucified. And crucified as a common criminal. But if she didn't know by the word of the angel, if she didn't know who he was, can you imagine the mother's heartbreak? She had hope because the angel told him. Who he was. So what I'm saying is. I believe that God wants us to go back. And take up. This matter of seeing people. From God's point of view. And even starting to name them. According to what God shows you they are. And train them up. In the way that they should go. Based on who God told you they are. Because when they're old, that's what they will be. Because God is the God of redemption. Now, this one is operating in the wisdom of God. And I'm defining wisdom as seeing things from God's point of view. When you listen to both of these CDs together on wisdom... You will, you will go back, you will see that we, we ended the last of the CDs with a reading from the book of, Phil, of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says that he wanted to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And we talked about the construction in the Greek, which is ek anastasis, or out-resurrection. He goes on a few verses later to say, for that for which God had called him heavenward in Christ. And we saw this as relating perfectly to Revelation 4, where John heard a voice calling to him from heaven. In Revelation 4, there was a door standing open in heaven, and John heard a voice calling to him, Come up hither and sit with me, and I will show you what is to come. The, the idea being, and we began with that idea on this, on this CD, and that was to say that God will give you God's point of view on everything and on everyone. There's a natural point of view and there's a spiritual point of view. The natural is based in our desire to survive and to, and to take care of ourselves. The spiritual is based in who God sees people as being. And my point was to say whether you... In any fashion, in any modality in which you have authority, your authority is to rule for the benefit of those subject to your rule, and that will require you to see them the way God sees them, not just the way you want to. And all of the examples were to just give us some way of getting our hands around that.
by by comparing how we how we are ruled, based how we are ruled in the the, the, the wisdom we operate in. We we ruled by the desire to make sure that people are provided for and protected, rather than to observe the in nature around us how God normally provides for and protects even the creatures of the sea and on the, on the, on the hillsides. And if he does that, will he not moreover clothe you, or you of little faith? And, and finally, I, I came to the place of saying, I personally have had to make this transition from seeing things the way that, that I saw things, to being made vulnerable, to allowing God to remake me into his fashion and into his image. I want to conclude with this. The most difficult transition of all that we have to make is to let go of our concepts of certainty. Our concepts of certainty and security. Now, that's not easy to do and it's not something that happens by the snap of a finger. And in fact, the more we are embedded with this notion of providing for ourselves and protecting ourselves, the harder it is to let go of that. But God, who knows exactly what it takes, will be faithful to you. I believe that we personally have to come to that place, and then we are free to let others be that as well. On my journey, probably one of the most definitive occurrences that I can look back upon now and relate to you as a real turning point in my life was this. Lucy and I were going through the thick of it. I mean, it was a hard, hard time for us because God began to shut down every door Every way I tried to twist and turn, God met me there and closed the door. And and one day, one day I was driving by a place in Albuquerque. It was a hamburger place in Albuquerque. And, uh, you know, on occasion I'll eat a hamburger, but it's not necessarily my favorite meal. But God this day directed me toward this hamburger joint. And it was it was a spring day, so I stopped and I was sitting outside. Ordered a hamburger and was sitting outside. And there was a lot of bun to it, not as much burger. So I was sitting outside and I was eating this burger very absently. And I was tearing off well uh, at a point in time, I was tearing off pieces of the bun, throwing it to this bird. But before that happened, I was eating this hamburger and thinking about how God was against me. <laughs> Everything I tried to do had failed. And my conclusion was, surely the Lord is against me. I, had said, I think I had said to Lucy some days before that, that I was just cursed. I've long repented of that, of course, but but it was how I felt in that day. Well then, as I stopped in and got the hamburger, I was sitting down. All these thoughts were going through my head. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I watched a sparrow, and it, there was a there was a the electric lines going right near to where I was. I watched a sparrow, and he jumped down from the high tension wires to the guy wire and then a little bit it was it was uh, it was right by my feet and i found myself absently tearing off pieces of bread and throwing it to this bird i'd eat and, and it wasn't it didn't require any thinking on my part i was just automatically doing that all the while occupied with all my woes you know how god had done so unfairly with me it had ruined me. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like my mind came in from this cosmic struggle, came back, and I was focused suddenly on the bird. 
on this bird had been on the periphery of my vision, on the periphery of my thinking, but suddenly I was thinking about this bird. And the Lord said to me, I stopped you on your journey today. And I brought you here to sit in this seat and to feed this bird. I determined today I would feed this bird by your hand. And I stopped your course and brought you here so that you could be my instrument for feeding this bird. And then he said to me, what do you think I will do to take care of you? And I broke down and wept. Right there. I broke and started to weep. Because the scriptures came alive to me. For if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will he not more overclothe you, O you of little faith? And then the scripture. And there are two sparrows that are sold for a farthing. But not one of them dies, but that your father knows it. Then the scripture, it came alive to me. And at that point I knew, I knew that I would either believe and walk this way, or I'd have to let it go, and it would all be a mythology to me. So these things I'm telling you, I didn't understand. A lot of times I don't understand why God puts me through the things that he has put me through. But I do know this, that there comes a time when he shows me why. And the same thing is true of you. You've gone through, many of you have gone through so much. And you don't know why. But I'm telling you, when God lifts the veil, you will know why. And you will find that God has prepared you to live in an eternal point of view. If there will be on the earth a handful of people who will believe God in this time, the effect of that handful will be greater than what happened when there were 12 guys who followed one guy. God is looking for a people in our time who will have the wisdom of God, who will live from an eternal point of view, and watch how God will authenticate the truth that he speaks to them and that he speaks through them. Our problem is we don't know how it will work. But I assure you of this. How many tons of food do you think it took to feed all the whales that ate today? How many tons of fish did it take to feed the whales that ate just today? And I understand some of those things live for what? 40, 50 years? Eat that much? Perhaps every day? And that's just and we weren't even, before we left West Texas, we weren't even thinking about whales. You see what I'm saying? God's got it all under control. He just wants people to step into it with him. And he'll show them what it is. He wants to restore your vision. So that you'll have an eternal point of view. And when you do, when you do, not only will your rule be restored, but your ability to function in that rule will be restored as well. We'll continue on in our discussion of the seven spirits of God. And the next time I hope that we'll cover both the spirit of knowledge and understanding. 
I will leave you on this note with the spirit of knowledge. Have you ever found yourself needing to fix something and had no idea what was broken about it, just that it wasn't working? And in desperation, you've said to God, I need help here. And you walked over to the very place where it was disconnected or loose or broken. I mean, you just walked from that cry of desperation right to the place where it was broken. But And you fixed it and it worked and you thought, that was really cool. But you forgot. You forgot that God did that. And now you've picked back up worrying about diagnosing it properly. Have you, have there been times when you had no idea where you placed that thing? It just disappeared from the face of the earth. <laughs> you could not find it if your life depended on it. And you're walking through and saying, Jesus, help me find this thing. <laughs> and there it was. It's like he put it back where you can see it. Except that then you remember why, how it got there. But then you forgot. Because these things can't happen like that all the time. And knowledge and understanding. There have been times when you had no idea how the thing worked. And suddenly for one brilliant moment, it all worked. God will show you. So we'll pick up the next two. Knowledge and understanding. And we may even get to counsel. And you'll see after a while that there is a constant flow to all of these things. And it will end with the fear of the Lord. And it'll, you can flip it around and it may as well begin with the fear of the Lord.